Good to see all of you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Obadiah as we continue our series through the Minor Prophets in a series we're titling The Book of the Twelve. Obadiah, it's one chapter, 21 verses, and so we're going to begin by reading uh, the entire thing, which is not necessarily the, the luxury we've had over the past several weeks, and so let's read this, let's read this together. Obadiah, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, this is the, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has, sent among the, has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came in, if thieves came to you, if plunder, plunders came by night, oh, how you've been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? And the answer would be, yeah, they would. If grape gatherers came to you, would not, they not leave gleanings? The answer is, yeah, they would. Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like him. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not glow over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain in triumph... So all the nations shall drink continually the drink of God's wrath. They shall drink and swallow, and it shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. 
And exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Thus says the word of the Lord through our prophet that we're looking at, Obadiah. Now this is the fourth book in the Minor Prophets, and remember, the word prophet does not mean that it's insignificant or unimportant. Uh, the, word pro- the word minor is a word that it is shorter in length compared to what we might refer to as the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Obadiah is actually the smallest book of the Old Testament. And we don't know anything about Obadiah, uh, other than what it says in verse 1, that he was a prophet of the Lord and obviously was dedicated and devoted to the Lord, which is why he was called to give this message to these people. We know that he cared enough about people to tell them what God had said through the way he communicated to Obadiah. Now the prophecy of this book, if you, if you remember in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. That's what this book is about. Now we can ask ourselves, the Edomites are no longer around. As a matter of fact, the prophecies of this book have been fulfilled. When it says they would be utterly destroyed, they are utterly destroyed. The Edomites are completely gone. And so we could ask ourselves, well then, does this book have anything for us? A book written to the Edomites? We'll get in on that. We're going to draw out how this book isn't just for an extinct nation of people, but how it's for us as well. The Edomites were kind of targeted a number of times by God. In Jeremiah chapter 49, Ezekiel chapter 25. Remember last week in the book of uh, Amos, there was a couple verses in 11 and 12 that um, called out the Edomites. And of course here in Obadiah, they were called out constantly. Now if you want to know who the Edomites are, they descended from Esau. Now if you remember, if you go way back in the book of Genesis, do you remember who Esau was? Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. Jacob's name would eventually turn to Israel and he would have 12 sons, or the 12 tribes of Israel. So after ourselves, why, why judgment on the Edomites? Well, it's because they were responsible for perpetuating the same hatred that filled Esau's heart towards Jacob. So if you go through the book of Genesis, once Jacob, remember back in Genesis 25, Jacob and Esau were fighting before they were even born. And then they, they, they grow up, and if you remember the story, Jacob would scheme Esau out of the birthright, and in response, Esau pledged to murder his brother for scheming him out of the birthright. Now, in the book of Genesis 32 through 35, there's a time of peace between them when their father dies and they meet um, at the funeral, and there's a time of peace. But as history would go on, the Edomites, again, the descendants of Esau, would rekindle that same hatred that Esau had for Jacob. And their anger would show up in horrific ways towards their Israelite cousins. This is how the, the Edom is described in a couple passages of scripture. They were described as people, they harbored perpetual enmity towards Israel, Ezekiel 35.5. And they were a nation, and we read this last week in the book of Amos, whose anger tore perpetually. And let's just pause here. And let me ask you, and ask myself, ask everyone in here, are you an angry person? Before God, how would you answer that question? How often does your body operate in agitated mode? How often are your emotions full of displeasure towards everything that's going on around you? 
Would you be willing to confess it to Jesus today? They were perpetually angry. It was their anger just completely, it tore them apart, it tore other people apart. But they, the Edomites, they weren't just hateful and hostile towards Israel, but also, and more importantly, towards God. There was no desire on their part to have God as part of their lives. There was no recognition or acknowledgement of his authority and holiness. There was no recognition of God's supremacy. Although, as we read in verse 1, it's God who's in control of the nations. Right? He says, we've heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has sent, been sent among the nations. As if God is saying, I'm going to control these nations to fulfill the purposes I have. He's the God of the nations. That's who God is. And they continued happily along in their pride and in their hate and in their ignorance. And like, like Edom, being God's enemy, we all are God's enemy. Now, some of you, as a matter of fact, most people are shocked that God would, ha- would have the audacity to call us lovely, sweet people his enemy. Just the other day, if I could illustrate it this way, just the other day um, I was helping with a, a pitching clinic that one of my kids is involved in. It's a, it's a softball pitching clinic. They got, a, they got a, uh, a softball player from the university here in town that comes over and coaches uh, and teaches kids how to pitch for softball. And it was difficult for her because there was nobody else helping, so she had to catch and try to coach when they were pitching, and it was difficult, so I volunteered to be the catcher. And once the kids did all their warm-ups and went through the different forms they're supposed to do and all these things, they, they went to the actual pitching, and so I was catcher. And, and one girl uh, pitched the ball, and it, and it came right to me, and I, and I said, and I thought I'd be encouraging, I said, good pitch, good job. And the coach says, it was good, but... And then went on to explain to this child how it wasn't necessarily a good pitch just because it got to the catcher. Because when the coach was looking at them pitching, she was looking at their mechanics. She was looking at their form. She was looking at if they were stepping right, if they were moving their arms right, if they were pointing right, all these things. And to me, it looked like a good pitch because it got over, the, got over the mound. But to her, she's looking at it from a different point of view. And she says... It was good, but, and, and that's what needs to happen with us. Because I wasn't seeing the pitch from the coach's point of view. And when we see things from God's point of view, then we realize that, yes, we are God's enemies. And it's we're God's enemies because we started out by making him our enemy. Yes, we started it. God stands in the way of our selfish motives. He stands, stands in the way of our selfish ambitions. He stands in the way of our selfish ways. I just gave you a case on why you should make God your enemy. Because if life is all about your desires, your wants, your ways, and getting what you want, then God should be your enemy. He is your enemy. Because God calls us to holiness, into righteousness, But we naturally love what God hates, and so we are his enemies. And we need to see things how God sees them. And when it comes to the book of Obadiah, God is going to help the Edomites see things from his point of view. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. God gave the Edomites three defining actions that proved they were enemies of God's, and we're going to look at the same. There are three defining actions of God's enemies. And they're true for you, and they're true for me. 
And we'll talk about the only hope, on our only escape out of this as we go along. There are three defining actions of God's enemies. Number one, finding security apart from God. Did you notice what it says in the first nine verses there? He says, I'm going to make you, verse 2, small among the nations. You're going to be utterly despised. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. So to be prideful means that you have such a high view of self and stuff that we're convinced we are fully secure apart from God. To have such a high view of self and stuff that we convince ourselves we are totally secure apart from God. Now the Edomites, when it says here, you who lived in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwellings, you soar aloft like the eagle. What he's saying here is if you looked at a Bible map, the Edomites were a little southeast of the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was a very mountainous region. So they literally lived in the mountains. And they, there were ton, there's tons of caves in those mountains. And so on the outside looking in, these guys were totally invincible. They were convinced that nothing could bring them down, right? It says, who's, you say in your heart, who's going to bring me down to the ground? That's an example of practical atheism. I'm secure, I'm good, who's going to bring me down? It's a statement of security. They were convinced that they were fine. They were convinced that they were totally secure. More than that, they had experienced times of prosperity. And so you get in verse 4, the kind of the imagery here, they're soaring like eagles. And then it says, though your nest is set among the stars. It's kind of this idea, they've, they're, they're, living, they're living on cloud nine. They're soaring high, life is good, and they've got ambitions to go even higher and greater and better. In all this, they were convinced. They were convinced that they would never see their enemies overtake them. And they were certainly convinced that they would never experience God's judgment. No one could bring them down. It says here, as the, as the chapter moves on in verses, verses 5 through 9, he says what's going to happen. He says their wise men are going to be killed. They're going to be completely destroyed. Human wisdom and strength is not going to save them in verses 8 and 9, 7, 8 and 9. The wise men, once they're killed, they're not going to know what to do. And they found security apart from God, and it blinded them to how insecure they really were. And that's what pride does. Pride deceives. The Edomites were rendered insignificant, but they thought they were sworn in the clouds. God was not impressed with all their stuff and all their strength. And it's amazing what people will find security in. There's a story of Homer and Langley Collier, and they lived in New York in the early 1900s. They were two brothers, and they were, they were the sons of a very rich, wealthy, and respected lawyer. Of course, their, their father dies, and the two are bachelors, and they inherit their father's fortune. However, they're quite the opposite of their father. They live their life in almost total seclusion and isolation. And they would spend their money, and people and neighbors would observe all this strange stuff going into their house. Junk. Newspapers. Pianos. X-ray machine. All these different things. Just weird stuff going into their house. And one day, the police get a phone call that someone had died. It was on March 21st, 1947. Police get an anonymous phone call that someone had died in the house, and they weren't able to get in the front door, and so they had to climb through a second-story window. After five 
hours of fighting through junk, they would eventually find Homer's body laying on a mattress. He had been dead for several hours. The other brother was not found. They assumed that he had murdered his brother and kind of hit the road with the money. Three weeks with an excavator and crews going in to take stuff out. Three weeks later, after cleaning stuff out on April 9th, 1947, laying inside a two-foot-wide tunnel made of drawers and bed springs, a workman found the body of his brother, Langley Collier. And though... There, all this stuff didn't come to light until 1947. The Collier brothers began building themselves and trapping themselves and closing themselves in way back as early as the 1930s. 120 tons of junk would eventually be pulled from their house. They took their stuff and they locked themselves in. They even found booby traps and weird tunnels and things. They locked themselves in amongst their stuff so that they would be totally secure and nobody could get in. What secures you? What secures you? What locks you in? What holds you in? Because if it's the stuff of this world and the stuff this world has to offer, the end of the road is death. Eternity hangs in the balance, yet so many people trust in temporal things to give them security. Yet God is offering that if you trust in Jesus, he says you don't have to pack your house with junk. You don't have to pack, you don't have to pack your life with junk. You don't have to pack your life with getting affirmation from other people. You don't have to pack your life with comparing your motherhood to somebody else's. You don't have to pack your life with, with how your friends are all getting married, but you're still single. You don't have to pack your life with a friend at school who gets better grades or is a better athlete. You don't have to pack your life with money or cars. Because it says when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, Jesus says you're put in the palm of the Father's hands, and you're closed in there, and nothing can take you out. There's nothing more secure than that. It's amazing where we think we where, where we think God cannot go. It's amazing to think what things we think that God cannot see. Things we do or say or think or desires that purchase up on this mountain and we think I'm safe, I'm good. Remember the words of Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the very division of your soul and my soul, to your spirit and my spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intents of your heart, and no creature, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Wherever in your sin you think you're safe, free from God, you're not. If you're not a Christian in here this morning, maybe you found security in something other than Christ. And I want you to know we're all like that to begin with. The very, actually, the very fact of being a non-Christian or not being a Christian is evidence of pride. It's part of what it means to be a Christian is to realize that one day we will give an answer like this verse says. We're going to give an answer for our lives to God. And we're going to realize that there's no distinction between anybody Everything's going to be laid bare, and every human is found guilty of cosmic treason. And the greatest blessing you can have is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. 
He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he invites you to come to the Father's hand, to get out of the junk of this world and come into his hand. That's the greatest security, is a security that lasts for eternity. The stuff, in the, the stuff of the world that provides eternity is temporal and unsure at best. But this pride, if you are a Christian, you should know that a high view of yourself is not fitting of a Christ follower. Pride is no more acceptable for a Christian than it is for a non-Christian. We are followers of Christ. You remember who Christ is? Christ was the God-man who came to this earth as a human in human flesh. He became obedient and became a servant, this God-man. He died the death we deserve to die. There's no excusing our sinful pride. Further, Christian, as we think about this lofty dwelling, there's one application here in asking, how approachable are you? How approachable are you to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your spouse, to your kids? Because pride tends to push people away. Pride tends to say, I'm in the mountains, I've got my caves of stuff all around me, I'm good to go, and it pushes everybody else away and says, don't come up here where I'm at. Are you okay to be interrupted? I mean, do mistakes that people make get blown out of proportion? Do differences in how you would make a decision compared to somebody else, does it cause division? Are you willing to be rebuked or offered reproof? How long is the list of things that offend you in your home, at your work, in the church? Because answers to those questions will reveal whether Christ is your sure and steady security or you've traded him for an idol. So we need to live in the freedom of Christ and come down off the mountain. But there's a second action of God's enemies. Number one, they, they find security apart from God. Number two, hating the people of God. That's in verses 10 through 16. Now if you notice here, it says, because of the violence done to your brother, shame shall cover you. It says in verse 11, the day they stood aloof. Notice here, it says your brother. In verse 12, it says, do not gloat glo over the day of your brother. I mean, you could argue that there are few conflicts worse than a family feud. And I know many of you have experienced those sorts of family feuds. But the Edomites knew only hate towards their brothers. Their violent hatred played out in standing aloof when their brother needed help. So instead of helping who needed help, they stood aloof and said, they even celebrated. They celebrated their demise. And then more than that, in verses 13 and 14, notice what, notice what happens. They gloat over the disaster. They, they, they would go and loot his wealth. Notice verse 14, it says, it says, don't stand in the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. That is to say, when the Israel, this is a real thing that really happened. When the Israelites were being murdered and destroyed, people would run away. And they said, let's run to Edom, they will help us. And when they stepped foot on Edom's door and the nation of Edom, the Edomites came out and killed them themselves and took their stuff. Be like you in your neighborhood, if you're being attacked and you ran next door uh, for help, and the neighbor opened the door only to murder you or take your stuff themselves. And that's what was happening here. And God makes it very clear throughout the Bible that to sin against God's people is to sin against God himself. 
This is in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Remember Jesus, when he speaks from heaven to Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God will not stand for people sinning against his children. Because God's people are united to God through Christ. And to sin against God's people is to sin against God himself. If you notice back in this passage in verse 15, the day of the Lord comes up. Now this was a big theme in the book of Joel that we looked at. So it's drawing near for all the nations. So God is saying, hey, this is for all nations. Any nation, any people that sins against my people, the day of the Lord is coming, judgment is coming. He says, the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord is any time in which God visits this world in wrath. And there's a great and terrible day of the Lord. We talked about this in the book of Joel. And if you weren't with us, that's okay. But it was in that, in that, in that same book, we talked about the coming day of the Lord. Revelation tells us that there's coming a day when, when God will avenge those even during the tribulation in the church age who have been persecuted for the name of Christ. God will avenge his people. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about the people of God. Maybe if you're not used to church or this Christian thing. I mean, do you ever wonder how it could be that whole entire governments and nations would look at someone who trusts God through his word, the Bible, and who trusts in Jesus in their savior and proclaims him as king, how on earth these governments could possibly say we need to murder them? We need to put them to death. Those people who trust God's word, who trust in the Savior Jesus, deserve death. Why is that happening? It goes back to the whole message of this, of being God's enemy. It's what Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says. Look at this verse. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We are all guilty of being hostile to God, and God is the only one who can save us. This section ends in verse 15. Notice what it says here. And listen to these words. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. It reminds us of Jesus' words, what we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, except he flips it here. And God says, what you're doing in this life, you're going to reap You're going to sow what you reap. Reap what you sow. Right? Someone correct me. After the service, someone can correct me on that. Reap what you sow. You're going to get whatever whatever you put in, you're getting out. God will not be mocked. It'll come back on your own head. Pride deceives, hate divides. And that's what we've lost in, in the culture today as you look around. We've lost this sense of kinship and brotherhood. And we ought to be careful when our celebrations are geared more towards our enemy just finally getting what they deserve or somebody getting what they deserve instead of rejoicing each day in the Lord for his goodness and grace. If your rejoicing revolves mainly around your enemies getting what they deserve or your enemies suffering hardship, then more than you rejoicing in the grace and goodness that God has shown to you, then you might be guilty of the same sort of hate. We too, as Christians, can become bitter and hateful, hating people and hating our enemies. Do you remember what Jesus said in Romans chapter 12? This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. 
And Jesus said in the book of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, here's why you're going to leave vengeance to God. Here's what he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, you want to know what you're supposed to do? When you've got enemies all around you, if you see one of your enemies hungry, go and feed them. If you see one of your political enemies thirsty, go and give them something to drink. If you see that person at work who's giving you a hard time for being a good little Christian, or that bully at school who's giving you a hard time for ever believing in some sort of Jesus Savior, if you see them hungry or thirsty, why don't you go take care of them? Go care for them. Don't be like the Edomites who just stood back and said, ah, I'm just glad to see you're hungry. Glad to see you longing for something. You're finally getting what you deserve. No, you go do it. He says in that way, he says, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when you see evil people getting what they deserve, quote unquote, the idea is don't be overcome by evil yourself, but overcome evil with good. Have you complained recently about how Christians are being treated in America? Have you maybe looked outside this and say, man, take America out of the picture. Look at how Christians are being treated all over the world. Have you forgotten who you're following? When Jesus was on this earth, he was a persecution magnet at every turn. And he would tell his disciples, they're persecuting me, they're going to persecute you. And persecution may not mean putting you to death. Persecution for a Christian is any attempt, and as we look at government, any attempt by government or people or society, any attempt to silence them in any way. And that might be silenced by making laws against Christianity. It might be silenced by saying they, they, that it's, or, or, or label them as hateful people. It might be persecution as actually putting them in prison or even to death. But anything on that persecution spectrum, we are following the ultimate persecution example. That's what 1 Peter 2 is all about. He tells us how to suffer quietly and willingly and righteously. Before we move on to the last point, I think we need to reflect on this and well and ask ourselves, am I a helpful person? Am I a helpful person? Do I help? cannot hide from helping, you know, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, we can't walk, walk by on the other side of the road, we can't close our eyes, we can't turn our eyes to it. We should strive to go above and beyond to encourage, comfort, help, aid, and walk beside other Christians. And we must be careful not to become a traitor ourselves, where we hate other Christians. It's very popular in today's world for someone who claims to be a Christian to say, yeah, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That Heart attitude, that sort of thinking is condemned by God as saying, you are not mine. To say you love Jesus, but you hate the people of God is a defining action of being God's enemy. Anybody say, well, that's definitely not me. Look, I'm in church, so certainly there are no God haters or church haters or Christian haters in here this morning. And maybe you're not. Maybe you're not like Edom. But maybe you're standing aloof in your own way. 
Maybe you're standing aloof from God's people saying, I don't want to be identified with God's people. I'll identify with Jesus quietly in the corner, but when it comes to loving and investing in and helping Christians, mm, I'd rather just keep my distance. Life will be a little bit safer on the outside. There would be no doubt who in this passage belonged to God's people for the Edomites. If you're a Christian, have you identified with God's people? Have you identified yourself with the people of God? We've got baptisms coming up for some younger kids in our church, and what we're going to do is they're going to identify with Jesus first and foremost, and they say, by identifying with Jesus, I'm identifying with his people, and at that very moment, they'll join the church. My final word to this, as far as all the hatred goes, to turn it less off of you and and saying you could show the same thing too, is to just encourage you to be encouraged during these dark days. Hatred for Christians is growing, and it's not stopping. Not God, I don't foresee the future, but all things taken into consideration, dark days in America will only get darker. The government and the different agendas that are being pushed around will only grow in intensity of their hatred towards Christianity, because every step, it never stops It never stops with the agendas. It never stops with the wickedness. There's always another thing to add to the wicked list. And the more things that are trying to get approved in our nation and celebrated in our nation, the more they're going to look at people who hold to Christianity and they love Jesus and they're going to say, these people are just so far from us. They are hindering societal growth. They are hindering our children. They are hindering the family. They are hindering society and they must be taken out. They're dark days. But would you remember as well that the end of the book is written? It reminds me of, if I could be the traditional Baptist and use a Lord of the Rings illustration. It reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Remember the last movie, because I never read the books? Uh, the last movie, Pippin is sitting. Some of you are really mad at me right now because I've never read the books, but I watched the movies. Uh, Pippin is sitting there with Gandalf. It's right before the last great battle, and he says, he says, uh, I didn't think it would end this way. Remember how Gandalf the wizard responds? End? This isn't the end. Death is something we all go through, and then at the end of this, beyond this, is that those green hills, that white shore. And as we look on the darkness of these days, we might be thinking to ourselves, I didn't think it would end this way. It's not the end. It's not the end. The only people that have an end are the enemies of God. And their end, it says in Revelation, their end is the lake of fire. There is no end for a Christian. And let me just clarify, there's, the end is the lake of fire, but there is a continuing, there's an eternity for both. Be encouraged in these dark days. The enemies of God will find security apart from God. The enemies of God will hate the people of God. And finally, as we close out the book in verses 17 through 21, the enemies of God will ignore the word of God. Now, God has been very clear throughout this whole book. And in the end here, he says, his people will stand. In Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. Now, think about that. Centuries, he's talking about the Israelites. Centuries 
of Israeli and Jewish persecution at every turn of human history, that as far back as the Jewish people go, at every turn of human history, the Jews are being persecuted. They're being cleared out. They're being killed. We have most notably the Holocaust of World War II. Every turn, people are trying to get rid of the Jews, but God says on Mount Zion, there are going to be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and Jacob shall possess their own possessions. There's restoration coming, and there will be restoration for the people of God. What was lost to Israel because of their sin will be restored by grace, and that's the message of the Bible. What was lost in you and lost in me because of our sin, God offers restoration through Jesus by his grace. We are still looking forward to this day when these verses are fulfilled in their totality. We're still looking forward to this day when when Israel, when God's people, they will stand on that mountain, Mount Zion, Mount Esau, and they will be restored. throne of Jesus will be in Jerusalem. Jesus will burst through the clouds and he'll say, this is the end. It's over. My turn. Now imagine the look on politicians' faces. Imagine the hearts and the people of those who reject Jesus when Jesus bursts through the clouds and steps foot in Israel. You know what's going to happen? All the politicians, all the people, they're going to gather together to get rid of this alien man who claims to be king. And in one word, it says in Revelation, in one word with his mouth, he's going to wipe them all out, immediately dead. And then Jesus is going to go to Mount Zion. He's going to stand there, and he's going to say, all of my people come to me, and they will. And he's going to set up his kingdom and his throne on Mount Zion, and we will forever be with the Lord. And those from every age will stand victorious through Jesus Christ. But you have to trust him. The story of this book As we've gone along, pride deceives, hate divides, ignorance destroys, but those are the defining actions of God's enemies. History is going somewhere. And it's moving towards the end of verse 21, the very last phrase, and this will be the last thing we look at. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. We gotta meditate on that daily as we watch the news We have to be careful about viewing God's kingdom as a mandatory second option now that America's not doing so great. Oh, American polity, American society, American economy is failing me, but, well, at least I got to look forward to heaven, I guess. This is where it's going. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's not the kingdom shall be the Republicans or the kingdom shall be the Democrats or the kingdom shall be a king's or a prince of this world. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. And I wonder if there are those in the church this morning, in this church this morning, who won't be in God's kingdom. Maybe you're a church member. Maybe you've joined the church, but you've never joined God's kingdom. Maybe you've joined the church and you're a church member, but you've never joined the family of God. You thought maybe church was a way to, you know, earn God's favor Or maybe you're in here this morning and maybe you've never been to church. You're not a church member, but you've had some vague emotional experience. Maybe you had a near-death experience that God saved you from. And you think, well, man, I had some some miraculous uh, encounter with God or something. But you truly don't know Jesus. 
And just like the Edomites, you're ignorant of God's word. You're ignoring God's word. That there's only one way to the kingdom of God, and that's through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you are a Christian, I wonder if you're ignoring the word of God. I would argue that perhaps the most addictive drug consumed by the church today is ignoring the word of God. If you're a Christian, meditate on the fact that God's kingdom is coming. All sorrows, struggles, sins, and suffering will be completely removed. All once be settled when the Lord defeats his enemies. There should be no survivor, establishes his kingdom. And further, seek to be a helpful Christian. Whether you're single, you're married, you're widowed, etc., we all have a part to play in God's kingdom. And it brings us to this final question Are you God's enemy? Are you God's enemy because you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I wonder how your fight against pride and anger is going. How your fight against ignoring the Word of God is going. I wonder if you're encouraged in these dark days. Or if there's pockets of unbelief or discouragement in your own heart. The end of the book is written. And the end of the book of Obadiah is written. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Lord, we look forward to that day when the kingdom will be yours. Where you will take back the keys that you've loaned out for a little while. You're going to pull back on that leash that you've put Satan on for quite a time now. Lord, in the meantime, I pray that there wouldn't be any enemies of yours. But Lord, I know there are in, a, in, a, in a group this size, Lord, certainly there are those who don't know you as Savior, who are your enemies. Lord, I pray that they would come to you, the only one that can save them. Lord, help us as Christians not to, not to be proud and arrogant, not to hate our brothers Lord, not to ignore your word, but to continue all the more steadfastly until your kingdom comes. In Jesus' name, amen.